0: Well, we're moving forward. We're in the book of Judges. Can you believe if you've never done the book of Joshua, you did Joshua? That's behind you. Judges, if you've never really done Judges, and you're, you're thinking like Mark Bailey talked about this morning with the flannel graph, and the last time you did the book of Judges was the flannel graph, <laughs> welcome to the book of Judges. Uh, first eight chapters is what we'll talk about tonight. All righty. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for not only having it recorded, but having it preserved so it's in such excellent shape that we can have every confidence in the world that what our Bible says, you said, and what you said, our Bible says. Uh, Thank you for giving us this. Uh, It's not just a resource, it's a treasure. It's your book for us to tell us about yourself and to tell us about us. Uh, Would you teach us your lessons, please, from your word? And I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would come tonight, be present with us. Would you teach, would you guide, would you lead all of my brothers and sisters into truth? Your word is truth. We love you and we thank you and we pray for this, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Judges 1 through 8. Let's see, how could I set the mood for 1 through 8? (laughs) 1 through 8 is, uh, gosh... It's sort of like an x-ray machine on the people of Israel. We're going to see some things in them that maybe we haven't seen before, or maybe we have, but we're going to see it again, uh, and we'll just, we'll just walk our way into it. Um, some of you wonder, you know, you're like, I wish I had your job, which would be fine. Um, you can have it if you'd like. Just talk to the elders. They'll give it to you tomorrow, I'm pretty sure. Uh, People wonder what do you do Monday through Friday? It's a great time. You only work one day a week, and that's not even a whole day. I mean, you show up, you do a couple services, you probably go out to lunch with somebody, probably take a nap, come back. After that, probably bonbons for the whole rest of the week. That's pretty close. Uh, so here's, here's some of the conversations that I have uh, during the week, uh, not with staff people. Uh, they kind of start this way, you know, I never meant, I never, get, I, I never meant to get into massive personal debt, so I'll talk with people who've gotten into massive personal debt. I never meant to cheat on my spouse. I never meant to become stingy with my money. Proverbs 11.28 talks to us about um, those who depend on their money are as fools. But there are people who get so tight with their money, uh, they become stingy. But the one most people want to talk about is this one. I never meant to become lukewarm in my spiritual life. Now nobody's ever said these next words to me, but if I were able to synthesize it and put it all together, you know, but they they would say, but I got bored. Or it became too hard to seek change. Or... It took too long. Nothing ever seemed to change. Or this one, it no longer seemed worth the effort. I never meant to become lukewarm in my spiritual life. But there I am. I can assure you that no one has said to me I intended to get into any of these things, and yet they did. And the way they did was one decision at a time. One decision of compromise led to another decision of compromise, led to another decision of compromise. It all started with one, one decision. One decision of compromise, including becoming lukewarm in our spiritual lives. God had told Israel back in Genesis and Exodus, you remember, Egypt was that place from which he redeemed them, and they learned by grace through faith under blood in God. They went out, Leviticus, remember we talked about how the priests and the sacrifices, book of Numbers, this is where they were tested to know what was in their heart, and they had a choice before them. Uh, Would they exercise self-will, or would they follow God's Word? Deuteronomy, Moses gives his uh, recap of the covenant and turns it over to Joshua. Joshua takes them into the promised land, which as we saw in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, there's an application to us, but also for them. They needed to break with sin, self-will and self-effort. By the time we hit the book of Judges, they're not doing so well after chapter 1. Chapter 1, they're doing great. After chapter 1, not so well. And so I've labeled Judges downward spiral. The third generation of Israelites had become lukewarm in their relationship to God. Their incomplete allegiance to the Lord led them on a downward spiral of compromise, sin, defeat, and missing out on God's best for their lives. Downward spiral. So I wanted to capture it this way. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. Tonight, we're going to look at the divided heart of compromise. For God's people, in the book of Judges, what used to be unthinkable and unacceptable, and that's living with and among the Canaanites, has now become tolerated and, in fact, the new normal of their life. What before was unthinkable and unimaginable is now Normal, status quo, every day. Israel's divided heart is going to be on full display tonight. Not just in these chapters, but particularly in these chapters. Let's take a look then at what are the basics. Who wrote this? Probably the best case can be made for Samuel. Remember Samuel? He's actually the final judge. So, perhaps Samuel wrote this because Samuel has a greater, um, if you will, arc in what he's writing about, and we'll get to that in just a second, but probably Samuel, I think, is a really good solution for this. When, he likely wrote it between 1040 and 1020, so if 1406 is when they come across the Jordan, takes them maybe seven years to get through the rest of Joshua, so they're about 1,399. Let's just call it 1,400 to 1,040. You got 300, 350 years between when we left and when we're going to start, Judges, left uh, Joshua. Where? don't know where Samuel would have written this, uh, perhaps in his hometown. Why did he write it? First, to demonstrate divine judgment on Israel's apostasy. They knew what was right. They weren't living it out. And to demonstrate the need for a centralized hereditary monarchy in Israel. One of the reasons Samuel writes what he writes is to mm, not necessarily justify, but um, observe that Israel is longing for a king like the other nations have. And so Samuel gives way to Saul, gives way to David, Solomon, etc. And so part of what Samuel is doing is he's beginning to pull together the fact that you guys can't live by yourselves. You need a king. So that's what the greater arc that Samuel might be writing and including Judges is without a king, you guys are a mess. Message communicated if that was what he meant to do. So this is the book of Judges. The first question is, what is a judge? Well, here's what they aren't. They're not officially elected, appointed, or anointed. They didn't inherit their office, as did Aaron or the Levites. They're not national leaders, but tribal leaders, although some delivered more than their own tribe. They're not chosen, star this one, they're not chosen based on their spiritual maturity. (laughs) What they are, they are raised up sovereignly and spontaneously by God. They are primarily military leaders. They also seem to have some civil function from time to time. And they turn out to be a temporary deliverer. Temporary deliverer. So where were the judges found? All over the place. From north to south. From east to west. You see all these, you can probably see it on your, um, the picture in your handouts. All All the places the judges came from or were doing their judging. So this is where the judges are from, what they aren't, what they are. The story of Judges is, yes, partly about the judges. It's also partly about Israel, but the most of it is about God that in spite of how Israel behaved, God continued to intervene in their lives for good. Primarily, the book of Judges is about God. And when you're finished with chapter 21 at the end of next week, hopefully you look back and say, wow, those, those judges, Whew. <laughs> wow, those people, oh my goodness. <laughs> What an amazing God. This book, like every book we go through, this book should help you learn something new about God. And the more you understand what was happening in the culture with the Israelites, I hope the more amazing God will be to you and how he continues to intervene. Um, In all these different places, in all these different ways... God is amazing in the book of Judges. So this is where they served. We begin the book of Judges. We finished um, in Joshua 24. It was actually a little bit before that, in some of the later chapters there where the, um, the different tribes had not been successful in driving out all of the Canaanites that were in their particular tribal allotment. So we left with an incomplete conquest. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. So off they go. By the time we get to verse 19, uh, the Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. And then we go through some of the other tribes. There's a quick recap through the rest of chapter 1, quick recap of how all the tribes struggled to get rid of all the Canaanites in their tribal allotment. Now, all of this came on the heels of chapter 24 in Joshua, where they said, remember, he calls the big stone as a witness and he says, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. We will serve the Lord. And that's what they all say. And Joshua says, this stone has heard everything you've said and will act as a witness uh, for you <laughs> or against you. And they're like, yay, here we go. So off Joshua goes off the scene. Here comes the new leaders on the scene. They have made these great resolutions. They have a great start in the first 18 verses. Then nine, whoops! Then 19 through 2-9, and we get this, again, this recap, and the end of the recap is Joshua dying. So there's a little bit of overlap here with, with Joshua. The incomplete conquest, you have to ask yourself, why, why did they give up? I mean, the Lord said, I will be with you, I will take care of all these Canaanites for you. Why why did they stop? Well, maybe it became too hard. Maybe it took too long. Maybe it was just no longer worth the effort. I don't know. But they stopped. And so the new generation comes on the scene beginning in verse 10 After that generation died, meaning the the generation that walked with Joshua, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things He had done for Israel. What? You read that verse and go, what? How could that happen? How indeed could that happen? In a sense, who is responsible for that? The generation who walked with Joshua. They evidently didn't do such a good job of passing it down to their children, or maybe even their grandchildren in that next generation. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned get these words, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. And so, uh, verse 15, every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. So, this new generation comes on the scene. They are not following Yahweh. In fact, they're doing worse than that. They're chasing after Baal and Asheroth, and um, I don't want to get too graphic. Baal and Asheroth um, probably were uh, like fertility, a fertility god and goddess. And that brings along all sorts of things later on in in the Old Testament. (laughs) Uh, Just remember that for right now. So, Baal and Asheroth um, are nasty, wicked. um, Yeah, they're just not good. I don't know why you even have gods like this, (laughs) but they did. And they're abandoning Yahweh, they're abandoning the Lord, and they're going with these worship, chasing after these other gods, which if they're a god and goddess of fertility things, you're chasing after that, you can. That's, that's just messed up. Okay, Israel is messed up in what they're pursuing now. So the new generation comes on the scene, and they clearly have an incomplete dedication, and they compromise every which way they can. The Lord, we're going to get an overview in, uh, or a, 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 an overview sentence in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They just, they run amok. Israel, as soon as Joshua dies, Katie bar the door. They are, compromise is on. So here's where the different judges come in. There are, some would argue, I think, it's, I think it's correct. You can make an argument for a few more or a few less judges, but here's the 12 that most everybody will, will agree to roughly. Uh, some of these are familiar names to you. You know, you've probably heard of Gideon. You've probably heard of Samson. Um, you may have heard of some of these others, uh, but there, some of them are a little more minor kinds of judges. And so they begin living with the Canaanites. They cannot drive them out of their tribal inheritance. One, because they've abandoned the Lord. And so now the Lord is fighting against them. But even before they were not doing it, why? Hard to tell. But they gave up. They gave up chasing and pursuing and and battling the enemies to get them out of their land. So, you've seen other graphics like this. This is the downward spiral. The beginning of the book of Judges, we see this cycle kick in of sin and oppression and repentance or deliverance. And repentance, at least in this chart, repentance is certainly a good word. I might call it, um, they cry out for relief. I'm not sure they're really crying out in repentance. (laughs) I think they're crying out for relief. Um, But then the Lord, nonetheless, the Lord steps in and delivers them, and that lasts for a certain period of time. The land has peace for a certain period of time, and then another Canaanite group shows up, and they go at Israel again, and the whole cycle repeats and repeats and repeats and so, Judges is, when I say it's a downward spiral, by the time you get through chapter 21, you're going to say, I need, I need to take a shower. I mean, this is, a, there's a lot of nasty, <laughs> just down, 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 down. And it's like, do these people ever learn? So, sometimes they don't seem to. So, the nations, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. Isn't that curious that Paul talks to us about the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit? To do what? To battle. Hmm. Curious. So, Othniel becomes the first judge. We've seen Othniel before at the end of uh, Joshua, and so Othniel comes on the scene. He's the son of Caleb's younger brother, and so Othniel comes on the scene, and he rules for 40 years, or he at least presides for 40 years, and there is peace in the land for 40 years, verse 11. Uh, Verse 12, once again, this is a great story, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again, keyword, the Lord again, raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, Now, if you're reading this for the very first time, you're going, ooh. He's a lefty. Because still today, the predominant hand is right hand. So if I'm going to have a sword, which side am I going to have it on? I'm going to have it on my left side because I reach across. So if I was ever going to get um, frisked, <laughs> like let's say we a king, <laughs> if I was ever going to get frisked, They're going to pat me down because they think I'm right-handed. You got no sword. He's clean. He's good. Well, if I'm a lefty, you haven't checked the other side. Key piece of information. So Ehud is a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. I'm just reading it, right? It's not a commentary. I'm just reading it. He was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, the what? The stone idols? Ah. When he reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. <laughs> so the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. Just underline the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. Well, in that particular time and in those particular kinds of um, structures, you put the toilet on the roof in a room. You made a room for it. And you'd go up there (laughs) to do your business keep reading. You're like, what? They didn't tell me this in Sunday school. No, they didn't. (laughs) Ehud, Eglon is sitting alone, yes he is, in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, (laughs) this is just weird, but okay, culture. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, (laughs) ah, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger, strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels (laughs) emptied. (laughs) Mm. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors from the inside, and escaped down the latrine. Woo-hoo! <laughs> I don't know how to make a flannelograph of this one. <laughs> and you go, this is crazy. Mm, keep reading. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors of the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. <laughs> Woo! He's got to be in there. <laughs> Because there's all kinds of stuff all over everywhere. Uh, so they thought he might be using the So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And then they opened the doors and they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped. So he goes down the chute. <laughs> Plop. <laughs> runs out, because there must have been an exterior, um, maybe they had a way to clean this thing out. <laughs> he runs out, even if he climbed out of a hole in the ground, he climbs out and he runs. And they, uh, he rallies everybody and they kill 10,000 of their most able-bodied warriors. So Ehud, great, uh, great story. That's why you've you, you got to read slowly and carefully and go, what is this stuff? There's a room, and there's some guys locking the doors, and what? How does this guy get out if he locks the doors behind him? Right? He, he closed the doors, and he locked them. How does he get out? There's only one way of escape now. <laughs> He's got to go down. Ooh, yeah. Okay, great story. Oh, that's Ehud. Uh, who's next? Shamgar. We just get one verse on Shamgar. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I've done 800. I don't know how he only did 600. <laughs> you know what an ox goad is, right? It's just a pointed stick. It might have been made of iron, but it's just a... Uh, they put... Remember Paul's, uh, or God says to Paul, why do you kick against the goads? Because if you were an animal, you would kick And so they put pointed things so that when they kicked, they'd go, ah, it would punish the animal for kicking. So the goads were designed, so, okay, animal, you just keep, (laughs) you keep your legs down because you start kicking and you're going to get stabbed with a goad, okay? So he has an ox goad, (laughs) he's 600 Philistines. That's amazing. Shamgar, can't wait to hear the story. After this we get a great interlude. Here comes Deborah. Deborah, she seems to have gotten a word from the Lord. She calls Barak, son of Abinoam, and says, "Come do this, come lead this battle, come do this thing." And he says, "I'm not going unless you go." And she said, "Well, Okay, then it's going to go down my way instead of your way, and that's exactly what happens, is two women are the heroines of this particular story. And so Deborah uh, helps Barack, and then she sings, just like Miriam, and just like Mary, she's got a song that she sings, which is amazing and wonderful, and she's uh, there's a great... Um, Gosh, lots of great things in here on worship, and so Deborah leaves a song behind, and there was peace in the land for 40 years. Gideon, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So, they've got to hide. They've got to hide their grain. They've got to try to hide their livestock because the Midianites are just, he talks about they're like locusts. They just come in and clear everything out. Well, Gideon's daddy has a couple of poles, a bale pole and a bale altar and an ashra pole in his backyard. <laughs> And so Gideon's whole family and part of this whole tribe is worshiping Baal and Asherah. Who does, who does God come to? He comes to Gideon. And he says to Gideon, here's what we're going to do, right? You're going to tear this down. And, uh, so anyway, he does that and he's called to go into battle against the Midianites he gets 10, uh, let's see, 32,000 warriors. Uh, God sends 22,000 of them home first. Uh, then he says 10,000 is still too many, and so they go drink at this little place, and he's left with 300. <laughs> and so God's going to win the battle with 300 men, and he does, uh, and Gideon leads the army and they defeat the Midianites. Oh, one little problem with Gideon, sort of there at the end. Chapter 8, of verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. Uh, however... I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, 43 pounds of gold later, big pile on the blanket, Gideon takes it, and he decides to make an ephod. Remember, that was a thing that the priests wore. Gideon, what, what, what are you doing now? <laughs> You're, you're making yourself into a priest and you're giving yourself some, you're making your own uniform here. What are you thinking? What are you doing, Gideon? Even the deliverer <laughs> needs deliverance. Gideon is not quite thinking clearly in this. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal bareth their god. They forgot the Lord their God, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. I mean, this is downward spiral. They're living with the Canaanites. They're compromising with the Canaanites. None of this compromise brought anything good to God's people. They're no longer useful for his purposes. They're no longer fruitful in his service. And they're no longer blessed as he'd intended to bless them. They held room open in the promised land for both God and idols. Whose promised land was it? God's. What did God say? I will be with you. Drive the enemies out. Some of them are going to be particularly hard to get out, but I will be with you. Get them out of there. Drive them out. For some reason, they didn't. So they began living with the Canaanites. That led them compromising with the Canaanites. And that meant God gave them the desire of their hearts the relationship and walk they wanted. Not the relationship and walk God wanted for them, but he said to them, Burger King, have it your way. That's the kind of walk you want? Here's what that life looks like. So he gives them the desire of their hearts. It's a horrible horrible thing. What's even more horrible is living with the Canaanites leads to compromising with the Canaanites, leads to living like the Canaanites. And so Israel, her love for the Lord grew increasingly cold. Her loyalty to Him was partial, and they became very, complacent. The peace and deliverance God brought them through the judges brought relief, but not Israel's wholehearted repentance. And as the years passed, they began to look more and more like the Canaanites rather than more and more like their God. That's sad. Sad. The book of Judges is not a happy book. (laughs) It's a sad book. They looked more and more like the Canaanites rather than more and more like their God. Truth. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites, in quotes, to living like the Canaanites. Again, in quotes, the divided heart of compromise. I thought just for fun we'd make some applications. I know you're glad you came. (laughs) Is what at one point in your life something was unthinkable? has that now become tolerable? Is there something in your life you said at one point would have been unacceptable? Now it's become acceptable. You know what? Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal to begin with. But now the tolerance for that Canaanite has become your new normal, or my new normal. That's called compromise. Truth is, we all have divided hearts. And the book of Judges just helps us look at that. The downward path of compromise, it may begin with good intentions not to, like Joshua chapter 24. But neglecting the word of God creeps in. We start to tolerate the enemy in the land of Mansoul. We no longer seek to, to expel or kill him. We live side by side with him, eventually surrendering to him. His desire to remain is greater than our desire to and maybe faith to be rid of him. We've built a house next to his, and we've put up a nice little white picket fence between us. And Mr. Canaanite can live right next door to me now. And before, that would have been unacceptable and unthinkable. And now, eh, what am I going to do? That's what Israel was doing. What am I going to do? I can't get them out. They won't leave. You will find, if you haven't already, that the Canaanites in your land have a greater desire to remain than perhaps your desire for them to go. And so we all settle for what we have rather than for what we've been given. We're no longer about claiming our inheritance, we're about making peace with the Canaanites. And yeah, every once in a while, he throws a spear through the white picket fence, but, you know, other than that, he pretty well leaves me alone. But every once in a while, I gotta do something with that spear that he just threw. And I'm afraid, I know for me, uh, to settle for what I have rather than for what I've been given is a daily temptation because it's just so much easier. Compromise is a slow leak, it's hardly ever a blowout. It's just a slow leak. Maybe it just becomes too hard. Maybe it just takes too long. Maybe it just no longer seems worth the effort. So why do we compromise? Let's look at it in reverse. An incomplete conquest for Israel or for us is the result. They knew God's expectation regarding the promised land because they knew God's word. So they knew the result. So let's back that up one step. They had an incomplete obedience, which is the means to the result. They failed to trust God's promises and walk in the power of his presence. So their incomplete obedience eventually led to an incomplete conquest. But let's back up one more step in the Israelites as well as for us. An incomplete conquest, that's the result. An incomplete obedience, that's the means. A divided heart, that's the cause. They gave both God and idols a place in His land and in their hearts, and so do we. Let's talk about some truth for divided hearts, of which I have one as well. There can only be one God and leader of my heart in the promised land, in quotes, of my man's soul. There can only be one God and leader. All other gods, in quotes, or idols are hypocrites. They're pretenders. They promise what they can't deliver. Idols cannot be redeemed, reformed, changed, or the last one, controlled. They cannot be controlled. Instead, they must be exposed for what they are. False, and no true source of hope or life, and be expelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Our wonderful brother, who's now with the Lord, uh, wrote a book a number of years ago called Counterfeit Gods. If you've finished Respectable Sins, um, you could start on Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Uh, Another horrible book, He'll identify four. He says he would trace all of these false gods, counterfeit gods, down to four. Um, I can add security and comfort. I might add control. We could add 10 or 20 more. But he's done a really good job uh, on these four. So let me just read you a couple of things that that he's written. Uh, He says, Every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imagination, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. But the Bible tells us that without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, it will never be God himself. If we look to something that has been created to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver, and it will break our hearts instead. There is always something that we invest in to reach a level of joy and fulfillment that only God can give. The most painful times in our lives are when our idols are threatened or removed. When that happens, we can respond in two ways. We can choose bitterness and despair. We can feel entitled to wallow in those feelings, saying, I've worked all my life to get to this place in my career, and now it's all gone, et cetera, et cetera. We may even feel at liberty to lie, cheat, take revenge, or throw away our principles in order to obtain some relief. Or we may simply live in permanent despondency. That's kind of his intro. Uh, Chapter on love. You say, is love bad or wrong? He's talking about a particular love. He says, romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart imagination, and it can dominate our lives. And he goes on to talk about romantic love. Our fears and inner barrenness make love a narcotic, a way to medicate ourselves, and addicts always make foolish, destructive choices. He goes on, he says, if you get married, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings on the person you are marrying, you're going to crush your spouse with expectations. He goes along. Uh, How about money? He says, innumerable writers and thinkers have pointed out the culture of greed that eats away at our souls. Greed is especially hard to see in ourselves. The person using money to serve a deep